Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Each episode, I'll examine a work or a part of a work by an American writer published by the Library of America. And this week, we'll begin by looking at Herman Melville's Omu. In his first work, Taipei, we get a taste of life on a whaling ship. But it's mostly a story of the people of the Marquesas, their encounter with European civilization, and the threat posed by the West to the people of the Pacific. Well dressed up as an adventure story, it often reads like an ethnography or a travelogue. With Omu, published one year after Taipei, Melville throws his readers into the ship. If the main story in Taipei surrounded the narrator's escaping from a work regimen on the ship, in effect escaping temporarily from Western industrial capitalism, in Omu, Melville allows us to experience the day-to-day brutality, suffering, deprivations, and horrors of a life at sea. While not entirely stripped of its joys and beauties, the working lives of the sailors presented in Omu is brutal and unforgiving. In Taipei, escaping from work was simply a matter of leaving the ship. In Omu, sailors are going to need to be much more creative if they want freedom. They'll become our metaphor for the American working class, caught between a rock of a horrible job and the hard place of even worse conditions elsewhere. Not surprisingly, resistance to work is a major theme of the novel. It is a shame that more people don't read Omu. Now, I realize why the Library of America put this book in their first volume. Melville is, after all, one of America's greatest writers and deserving in the opening position. And it made sense to begin with his first three novels. The Wikipedia entry for Omu, at the time of this recording, does not even include a plot summary. It lacks the the device he exploited in Taipei of introducing the reader to a new society, but the characters in Omu are arguably much more in peril. They meet much more interesting people, and they go on a series of really, really compelling adventures. Much of the novel is just a series of interesting vignettes and stories and little mini quests. If, if you play video games, you might be attracted to the kind of the, the side quest sto- um, approach. That really comes through here in Omu. And as a study of the relationship between work and freedom, Omu is more timely than ever. In a way, Melville puts Bartleby the Scrivener on a ship and has him loudly proclaim, I would prefer not to, in in the face of a series of potential bosses. And the stories intertwined with the novel are so great. This is one of those books that you can open up at any place, step into a nice vignette rich with meaning. And it may be one of his most fast-paced books. And I just have to give credit to a book that ends essentially with a failed job interview. As someone who's applied for many jobs and failed at most of them, I I really appreciated that ending. So on to my summary and analysis. Um, I'm going to try a different approach with this one. I'm going to try something a little bit more play-by-play and see how that goes. I'm still trying to get a feel for what approach will work um, best. In the future, I want to have a pretty standard structure to this podcast. But for now, I think I can experiment a little bit. So in the preface... Melville shows us that this novel is a sequel of sorts to Taipei. The character Tomu, that was the name he got from the, from the 
Taipei people. He's renamed Taipei in this novel. This is because the crew of the ship he joins names him after his previous adventure. Uh, so there's continuity, but there's kind of a, a reboot of, of the character in a way. And later on the novel, he's going to take the name like Jack or John or something, but that's just um, um, because that's what some people, some Americans they meet call him. Anyways, our setting at the beginning of the novel is a whale fishery in the South Seas. It's a region much more affected by the West than the isolated Bay, isolated bay of the Taipei. He also introduces us to his major character, the roving sailor. Omu, the name of the novel, refers to this castaway vagabond sailor um, in a South Pacific language. This, was followed, this part is followed by a short introduction that bridges Taipei uh, with this novel by summarizing the adventures in, the, in Taipei. So anyways, chapter one. Taipei boards the ship, the, the Julia. So it, it pretty much picks up right where the previous novel left off. He's introduced to two sailors he met earlier in his journeys. And this really suggests how small the sailor's world could be at the time. He met the first of these in Rio de Janeiro and the other er, even earlier in Liverpool. He is also introduced to the captain who agrees to take him on. He's given the name Taipei at this point by the sailors in the, in the foxhole. In chapter two, uh, we find out that the Julia is an American-made ship that was taken by the British during the War of 1812 and sold to a Sydney whaler. It is, in other words, pretty old, and it's presented as a dangerous setting due to the age. Quote, lively enough and playful she was, but on the very account, the more to be disturbed. Who knew? by that like some vivacious old mortal, all at once sinking into decline, she might, some dark night, spring a leak and carry us all to the bottom." End quote. At the time, about a third of the ship's crew has deserted already. Half of the rest are sick. And the captain is a young man and not respected by the men. They call him the cabin boy. The mate is more capable. He's an experienced sailor named John Germain. He is, however, a drunk, and he spends most of the novel drunk. Um, in one state or another. The final members of the crew we are introduced to is a fascinating character, Dr. Longghost. He's well-educated, literate, but was driven to poverty by poverty to service on the ship. The most interesting thing about the doctor was that after a fight with the captain, he chooses to sleep in the foxhole with the common seamen. Melville is only a few pages into this book and has already given the ship such life and the crew such character. The crew has its history. It has a dilemma. It has internal conflicts. And the crew, it turns out, has enough power collectively to contest the will of this relatively weak, inexperienced, and, and, and just mostly ineffectual captain. So a really great opening to this book. Chapter 3. Now this is much more on the situation on board the Julia. Dr. Longghost resigned his work as doctor and declared himself simply a passenger on the ship, which again shows how weak the leadership of, the, of this boat is at the time. Most of the men are ill, um, which tells us, some, tells us something I think about Dr. Longghost, that he's not really doing his duty to help save lives because he's so disgusted with the way things are. Food's also limited. They only have tea and this South American drink Pisco in, in abundance. Now, drink is going to be a common theme throughout this whole book. In the start, it's this pis in the start of the book, it's this pisco stuff they have on the ship. Towards the end, when they get on the Society Islands, it's brandy. It's this French drink. Um, I guess kind of a cheap cognac or, or something. 
we get another piece of the picture in, in, in just a growing picture of the conflict between the master and the crew. The crew will desert in large numbers in port, and the captain knows it. If the captain tries to resupply or to find a replacement crew to fill the gaps in his roster, the crew is just going to leave. Uh, so that will be counterproductive. Staying at sea, though, seems futile because the crew is not really in a position to do much whaling. I mean, they're not healthy enough. They're not full enough of a complement to actually hunt whales. So in an effort to salvage the expedition, the captain sails for an island, St. Christina. It's in the Marquesas. And his goal there is to collect eight sailors who deserted earlier uh, before the events of the novel take place. Chapter four. To make it clear that the power on the ship is in the hands of the crew, Melville includes an account of a fight between the ship's carpenter, Chips, and the mate. The mate is defeated, and the officers are in no position to punish Chips for his infraction. Next chapter, uh, the Julia arrives at St. Christina. They bribe the local people there to get the location of the deserters. Um, so this is a kind of an interesting side note, how the islanders use desertion as a way to make a little bit of extra money. Um, we can imagine there might be bribes both ways, both by the deserters and by the crew to try to get them back. So it's a fun little interplay of, of power there as well. Germain, the mate, falls asleep while watching for more desertion. His plan was just to stay up all night to make sure the sailors didn't desert, but he fell asleep, um, probably because of drink. He wakes up to find that a handful of the crew indeed deserted. So Typey and Dr. Longghost enjoy the scene quite relish the scene, actually, as Germain struggles to get the crew back, including five of the eight original deserters. Once again, we see how helpless the captain and mate really are. It's only with the help of the islanders that they're able to bring any order to the situation um, and, and to bring order to the ship while in harbor. Chapter six, they sail off um, another island, to, to another island, uh, La Dominica, to recruit some English sailors who they think may be looking for work, and they end up hiring four of these. Quote, they were selected from a choice assortment of suspicious characters as being of an inferior order of rascality. Before leaving, the captain arbitrarily shoots one of the islanders, or shoots at one of the islanders, injuring him. Melville uses this time to comment on the cruelty of the Europeans, saying, it is a cruel fact that the more ignorant and degraded men are, the more contemptuously they look upon those who they deem their inferior. And how right he was. Now, this exact quote, well, not, not the exact quote, but a, the same sentiment is expressed in one of the most famous quotes from Moby Dick. Um, and we'll come to that much later when we get to that book. But you see, every bully boss you've ever known is reflected in this character. Chapter 7. They go to the other side of the island, and here we meet our first authentic South Sea vagabond in a man named Lem Hardy. He was a deserter who established a kingdom for himself. He married a local princess and begins making law. Melville discusses the importance of this class of people on the islands. Okay, I had to stop there a second and find the book. Okay, this is on page 354 of the Library of America version of this book. Um, as for the most part, it is just this sort of men, man, so many of whom are found among sailors, uncared for by a single soul, without ties, reckless and impatient of the restraints of civilization who are occasionally found quite at home upon the savage islands of the Pacific. And glancing at their hard lot in their own country, what marvel at their choice. Um, 
yeah, it's just such an interesting class of people that he explores here. And I don't know of any other work that really gets into these people, these castaways and deserters who just sort of populated the Pacific Islands. Melville finds them a fascinating group of people um, and explores them in this book. Um, anyways, chapter eight. Melville does a digression on the tattooing on the island, and he uses Hardy as a source of information on this. Now, we learn that many tattooers, islanders who specialize in doing this tattooing, were actually con artists who would travel from place to place, but they were just bad at it. They lacked the basic skills. They'd set up stalls at the equivalent of carnivals, providing low-cost and low-quality tattooing. And then when they got exposed as basically bad at their job, they would go off to another place. Um, chapter 9, we're introduced more formally to Waimotu, an islander recruited in La Dominica. He is baptized into the crew, and the crew is now fleshed out a little bit. There, some of the deserters were brought back, and there was some new crew was hired, and the mate is able to reorganize the watches. There are still too many ill to take seriously, though, any idea of whaling. Taipei is still lame from his adventures in Nukuhiva and spends much of his time lazing with Dr. Longghost in the forecastle. Melville discusses the politics of the ship, in particular the, quote, democracy of the forecastle or the democracy of the folksill, if you will. For, to complete this contrast, Melville shows how Germain, German, the, the, the mate, begins using this ship, begins keeping the ship's destination secret, keeping it from the, the crew. Chapter 10. This chapter is mostly on the condition of the folksill. It includes a wonderfully gruesome tale of how a rat burrowed into Taipei's can of molasses and died there, and they continued to drink it, eat, eat the molasses, until at the end they found out there was a rat that died in there. It's only discovered when the molasses runs low. Um, pretty gruesome. Chapter 11. Dr. Longghost plays pranks on the crew, some of which are quite dangerous sounding, such as hoisting up people who fall asleep on the deck. Um, we briefly meet a runaway slave from Baltimore named Baltimore. And just as Melville took time to flesh out the life among the Taipei, he's giving us a full picture of the sufferings and joys and boredoms of life on the ship. It is a very lighthearted moment before things start to get rough for our band of South Sea ruffians. Chapter 12, two sailors die from, quote, the powerful indiscretions of seamen, heightened by circumstances apparent. The narrator makes clear that their illness would not have been fatal, at sea, would not have been fatal if they weren't at sea. They're buried at sea in a ritual run entirely by the crew. And again, we see the crew taking the leadership of running the ship. In this case, it's a funeral that the crew has to do. The officers aren't really that interested, or maybe they just don't know the rituals that the sailors perform that well. The sailors then talk about death. One story, one tells the story of a plague that killed most of a crew in an Indian Ocean voyage. The sailors lived their life in fear of illness to such degree that the ill are actually ostracized on the ship because there's such fear of, of the other sailors getting sick, the well sailors getting sick. Heavy drinking and makes their health much worse. The Deaths deepen the mistrust between the crew and the mate and the other officers who seem not to know where he's, he's heading. The crew doesn't know where they're going. And it's a really scary moment where the crew fears that they're going to die at sea. Um, chapter 13, we, we learn the captain is ill and will soon die. Um, and this, so the setting for a clash is laid out. Germain promises to continue their mission and, not re and won't return to port until the ship is full of sperm whale oil. Now, this is just almost delusional. Um, by this point, with the crew in the condition they're in. 
The crew determines that the ship will return to Tahiti in the event of the captain's death. And the crew's position eventually wins out. This should come as no surprise to the reader who's been taught that the crew is in fact the dominant force on the Julia. Chapter 14. We meet another crew member, uh, Rope Yarn. He's the, he's the steward, and he's a failed sailor. He's the quintessential landlubber. Ropey is hated by the crew, and he's constantly being mistreated. We learn how he became a sailor. His small fortune uh, and his business was ruined by his spendthrift wife. In this chapter, we see the cruelty of democracy of the folksill, which is open to all who prove their ability. It's not that Ropey is useless. He has a job, but his inability to sail makes him an outcast. And I'm going to stop here until this airplane passes. Okay, the plane passed by. Um, that was probably more for me than you. I don't think it shows up that much on the, the sound quality. Um, I'm filming this in Taipei. We don't have that many planes that go by, but there's sometimes street noises and things. But um, I'll do what I can. I can't promise studio quality here. Um, chapter 15. We learn that the crew is phoning it in at their work as they return to Tahiti. And, and some of the crew even seem to be perpetually drunk. So that's the theme of that chapter. Um, next chapter. The poor condition of the Julia is worsened by a storm that broke part of the mast. And we learn that Baltimore, the, the runaway slave from Baltimore, fears the storms and his, um, and we learn of his survival strategies as well, um, of, of trying to survive and endure this ship. It's kind of a nice little story. The ship lacks the su supplies to be repaired um, at sea. In chapter 17, it begins with another, yet another example of the weakness of Germain, who relies on Longos to confirm his navigations. It, it's proven that he basically can't navigate very well, which is kind of striking at this point in the story. For all intents and purposes, the ship, and in particular the navigator German, is lost. They manage to reach the Coral Islands, which are near Tahiti. These islands, we would know them now as the Society Islands. And we're given some of the social and economic reality of the Society Islands. And they're heavily connected to global capitalism. There's a huge missionary impact. There's a lot of ships coming. It's a center for the whaling industry. It's just heavily affected. Unlike the Taipei Bay, which was pretty isolated from the West, here we're in a fully colonial space. Chapter 18, joyfully the crew reached Tahiti. Uh, Melville does not give us an extended history of the region, claiming that the accounts of Tahiti have been written already, um, which kind of gives a layer of realism to the novel. That he, he, he speaks as if it's a nonfiction book. Um, chapter 19, Joy is turned to anger when it's revealed that the ship will remain at sea and the captain alone will go to shore. The fear is likely the same one that affected them at the earlier island. If they go fully into the harbor, desertion will take place and they'll lose control of the crew. Desperate to keep the expedition profitable, the officers consider how to keep the crew on the ship. Mutiny is then immediately discussed, and the crew meets in the forecastle. The conspiracy of the officers is here directly paralleled with the conspiracy of the crew. When the mate decides to go on shore as well, the crew is left in the hands. The ship is left in the hands of the crew. Command was given to a harpoonist, Bembo, an altogether impressive man. And this is again a common theme throughout Melville's work: is just how effective and skillful, brave, strong are the harpoonists. Uh, they're really the core of these whaling ships. Crew. Uh, next chapter. In order to tone down talk of mutiny, Taipei suggests a round robin, essentially a petition 
that will be sent to the English Council in Papete. It's a nice device that suggests the equality and democracy of the Folksil. Melville even has it presented as an image in the text. Um, it's simply a, a circle with the names of the crew signed around it. The names showed the diversity of the experience of the sailors. You have Islanders, you have runaway slaves, Americans, Britons, and Australians. At this point in the tale, we have gotten the stories of many of these people. The petition succeeds in getting the attention of the local council, a guy named Wilson. He arrives to investigate the ship. Now, here we might think we have an ally, but the crew thinks he might have an ally, but it's not true. Wilson finishes his investigation and determines that the crew is not being oppressed, has enough food. Uh, now Salem, a young sailor, protests this with mutinous gestures and words. Wilson simply ignores him and orders the ship out for a three-month voyage, at which time they'll return to Tahiti to pick up their captain, who hopefully by that point is well again. The crew openly protests, but to no avail. The state, in this case, clearly sides with the captain and the interests of profit. Chapter 22. A counselor doctor arrives to inspect the crew. Um, he orders only two of the sick to shore, which again is quite amazing considering how many of the, the crew is sick and how many of them have already died. It's really condemning some of these sailors to death. The crew turns to a new strategy, that of strikes and work stoppages. Germain again goes to shore, leaving the ship in the hands of Bembo, who merely smokes while the crew breaks into a, a anarchy fueled by overdrinking of Pisco. The drink. Chapter 23, the mate returns to the ship and single-handedly tries to good cop, bad cop the crew, which is kind of funny to read. This fails to um, warm the crew at all, uh, who expect months more at sea and don't want to face it. A drunken brawl between an Australian convict and Bempo disrupts the drunken revelry of the ship, and the crew finally goes to sleep. Later, Typey wakes to find that Bempo is piloting the ship around, aground and trying to destroy the ship. Uh, in the next chapter, the crew manages to somehow miraculously save the ship from this pilot gone astray. Germain gets some order on the situation and decides to turn Bempo over to the council for some kind of punishment. Chapter 25. In this chapter, Germain is reunited with the fellow survivors of the shipwreck 15 years earlier. It's a nice moment that helps to humanize this character who is mostly hated by the crew. It also provides another example of how people in these mobile spaces like the Maritime Pacific often run into each other. And here's the heart of a major theme of the book, and that is each sailor has an, ad an adventure or a story to tell. Now, it's kind of frustrating in one way in the novel because you meet these characters, you meet their backstory, and then Melville moves on to some other story, and it's going to ha keep going on throughout the book. But it's kind of what makes the book so delightful. It's just all these little little stories and little vignettes. It's, they're, they're each literally delicious in my mind. So chapter 26, Germain decides to ignore the council's orders and sail for the harbor. It seems that he simply does not think the voyage is possible short of a harpoonist. And with the crew so disorderly, you know, he's not going to get anything done. We meet another strange character in the pilot Jim, a boy who's accompanied by an old wizard. Both of these people are islanders, and Jim takes over the ship temporarily, completely ignoring Jermaine and the crew. It's really a nice little moment. Shows this young, island, this young islander, this pilot, is such in command of his profession. Well, this ends the first section of the novel, the first 100 pages. Um, it's about the adventures of Taipei on board the Julia, mostly. Thematically, it's tied to the conflict between the crew and this democracy of the folksil. Uh, you know, this 
democracy is in struggle against the tyranny of the mate. And this part of the novel ends with a victory of sorts for the crew, as they finally achieve their goal of getting to port. However, as we'll see in the next episode, the crew faces a larger enemy in the form of the colonial state and in the form of Wilson, the consul. So thanks for listening to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Feel free to uh, comment, like, share, subscribe, whatever you do. And if you join this podcast, um, you know, please tell others about it. See you in 100 Pages for the continuing adventures of Type P in Melville's Omu.